So they, what they do is they um, will ask you, where does he live? What's his number? What's a contact? You know, and it's like, I have a protection order. I'm not going to go digging around in his life because that's going to put myself and my son in danger, especially if he finds out that I'm asking questions. So, you know, I don't know. And when they're like, well, you don't have to tell us, but it makes it harder for us. So if you've seen the Netflix series Made, you know just how much paperwork there is when you're a single mum and you want the government's help. It can feel like an endless loop just to get the money you thought you were entitled to, like child support. And sometimes you're even asked to help track down the person who owes you that money yourself. How's that fair? From Stuff and Bird of Paradise... This is Tell Me About It, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of our reporting on gender issues to hear the voices at the centre of our stories. I'm Kirsty Johnston and I'm a reporter at Stuff specialising in the justice system. I'm Michelle Duff. I write about issues that affect the lives of women and children. Both of us spend way too much time thinking about all the ways the system's rigged against women and minorities. We've been seeing it in our reporting for years and now we want to share it with you. And I'm Noelle McCarthy. I'm a broadcaster and a writer, and I produce this series. No my Heidi Mai, and welcome to episode four. Today we are talking about child support. Michelle, this is a little pet passion of yours. Why did you get into writing about this? Uh, yes, yeah, so I have a friend, a single mum, who for years had been struggling to get her child support from uh, the father of her two children that she was entitled to. And I have watched her through the years sort of struggle with paying bills and being able to afford things for them, including food. And I thought it was just really unfair. And so I started asking some questions and it turns out that this is not an isolated incident that for a lot of uh, people that are meant to receive child support, which is usually women, they uh, have a really hard time and they're sometimes asked to find the people themselves. Yeah, this is one of uh, the examples of your reporting, and I've had it with both of you, Michelle, where I feel like I've been living in a sort of cocoon of privilege, not having any idea about our system in New Zealand. I mean, I didn't even know that um, if you're on a benefit, then the state actually is entitled to take your child support. And I think that's part of the story of the person we're going to hear from today. Yeah, well, I didn't actually know that until I started looking into it. Yeah, so if you're entitled to a benefit, then the state takes the portion of child support that is meant to be for the upkeep of your children and they use it to pay off your benefit. So that's something that happened to Sarah, who we're going to be hearing from today. Um, So the second part of her story is that when she went off the benefit and so she would have been entitled to receive the money, he stopped paying. And so then... You know, it was sort of up to her to try and find find him, essentially. The other part of the story that just blows my mind is that you actually have to sort of get your private detective's hat on. Are we about to get mad about another thing? Yeah. I think we're gearing up for it. Right. It's actually quite upsetting. I Yeah, I really don't know how some of these women are expected to live, to be quite honest. And we're going to, um, so we're going to talk to Sarah. Sarah's not Sarah's name. She's using a pseudonym today, and that is because so she can speak freely, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So we're going to hear from her now. Yeah, so I was working full time um, in a very good paying job, and I met my uh, ex-partner who became my son's father. We had a 
bit of a will and quick relationship that ended up in a pregnancy. And so when I met him, he told me he worked full time and that he would get up and he would go to work every morning and he would come home with work stories. And when I was five months pregnant, it turned out that that was all a lie. He did not have a job. He was drug dealing. <laughs> so the relationship went caught very abusive very quickly. And so I had to, um, after giving birth, um, get a protection order and a parenting order. And the stress of trying to be a single mom and work with, I had a cancer scare and my son needed grommets. Um, the decision was made. I just was like, okay, well, I'm not going to work. It just doesn't benefit me trying to work full time. So then I went from quite a good paying job to a single mum on the benefit. And so he'd actually managed to get himself a job in that short amount of time. So um, I was thinking, yay, you know, because um, the benefit, I think, was only paying. So my rent was two seventy five, and I think after all the bills, I had thirty five dollars left over, which or forty dollars for shopping. And how I thought, do you how do you even survive on that? You sacrifice everything. You sacrifice driving your car, and you sacrifice um, meals. So you only have like maybe one meal a day to make sure that your child can have formula. You rely on um, family if you can. Um, you make decisions like, am I going to buy nappies or am I going to buy tampons? So, yeah. And you just, How do you even make that decision? Um, you Well, I guess for me it was putting my son's needs before my own. Um, and I didn't know about things like food parcels because um, I was – now I, I do social work, but back then I did early childhood. And I, that, I wasn't aware of that. I didn't know that those existed. How um, old was your baby at this stage? One. Okay. Yeah, so he was – I – yeah, so he turned one, and then I think he was about 18 months when I went on the benefit. Yeah, and did you leave your ex before he was born? No, he was uh, just turned like just turned one years old. So but, you stuck it out, even though yeah. you knew he'd been like lying well, and stuff? I didn't want to stick it out, but when you're with someone who's very, very violent and will stalk you, they kind of weasel their way back into your life. So we got him removed from the home, and then I came home from work, and he'd broken back into the home and moved all his things back in, and basically was like, "You, I live here. You can't tell me not to." Um, and it wasn't until the police turned up again. I think we had seventeen police family harm callouts. Um, most were neighbours calling. Um, that the police said to me, "Next time you come, you'll be living in a body bag." And that really, really resonated with me. And it was like, okay, I was like, how do I stop him coming back? And so they put me on to um, Women's Refuge. And then um, he broke back into my home and I went down to work and income in tears. Like, I don't know what to do. He keeps breaking into my home. And they got hold of Women's Refuge um, and got the worker to come and meet me there. And it was at that point that she's like, right, we're getting you a protection order and a parenting order. And that's what got him out and didn't, so he couldn't come back. What's a parenting order? So it's like um, day-to-day care. So the protection order says that, um, so I had a non-contact, which meant he was not to contact me for any reason. Not if a, a contact protection order means you can have contact, but they're not to abuse you. And if they do, they can be breached. A parenting order grants through the family court day-to-day care of one or the other parent that's going for the parenting order or um, family member. Uh, in my case, it was um, full day-to-day care was granted to me because he was not seen as a safe person for my son to be around. Um, and that was a two-year in-and-out-of-court saga to get that done. Um, 
And that just meant that I was responsible for him. And when he had his supervised access, it meant he had to, my son had to be returned to my care. Without one, it meant that if he took him out to the park, he could choose not to bring him back. And there was nothing in law to say that I could, he had to be returned. He had to come back. Yeah. Did you say that your little boy was sick as well? Yeah, so he, um, I had a cancer scare and at the same time he was getting ear infections every couple of weeks and needed grommets. So we were in and out of hospital for both of us for quite a period of time. So you you can probably imagine the amount of stress of having no money, um, trying to pay for parking, constantly feeling unwell, dealing with the family court system and lawyers and, yeah, it was... Very, very stressful, very stressful time. I was very lucky to have supportive family, but they weren't always financially in a position to help me, so they did what they could. So my mum had a veggie garden, and she would bring me veggies and things out of that to help me get by. Um, Food banks, often you get things like rice and baked beans, so you'd eat a lot of baked beans on toast or tuna and rice and you know, <laughs> to survive. Protein, the old yeah. two-minute noodles. Yeah, um, so many chickpeas. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, and canned tomatoes and stuff. And you you just, and I couldn't afford the internet, um, so it's not like I could Google recipes. So you just kind of make it up. Or if you were at someone's house with the internet, you would then try and get some recipes. Wait, then. how long ago was this? Because I feel like at this point the internet's basically like a human ride. Yeah, like yeah. How so, do people? Uh, Ten years ago. Even then, eh? It's pretty hard to exist. Yeah, it was hard. We had McDonald's down the road, so we would go and sit at the free Wi-Fi at McDonald's or the mall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And luckily that was walking distance. Um, But it would even be things like trying to buy toys and things for my son. Um, So we'd use the secondhand shops. And we spent a lot of time at the Salvation Army. They did like one meal a night for a gold coin, and you'd get like lasagna or roast chicken and so we'd, for a really the, good um, meal, we'd go there. What was the impact of that on you, feeling like you were the recipient of charity or that kind of thing? Like, was that difficult for you? Yeah, that humbled me really quickly. So I went from from 10 years ago, I was, I was around 65K, um, which was great money back then, um, to I think the benefits was back then like 32K a year, maybe. Yeah, so it humbled me very quickly. The life that I was used to living um, wasn't. But even with him, he was very financially controlling. But he loved food, so there was always good food in the house. Or there was, you know, we had the internet and um, there was some luxuries, you know. What I would consider when I was on the benefit, those were luxuries. Um, Yeah, so it was definitely a struggle and... It was extremely frustrating because I assumed because he was working that the child support would come to me. But it didn't? No. So I remember knowing that because you get paid once a month on a certain date, and I remember being so excited I was going to check my child support, I was going to check my bank account, and I'm going to have this, I think it was $250, and that was going to like, you know, be amazingly helpful. I think I was going to do a big shot, and that was going to be me for the month, and then it never came. Then I rang IID and I was like, hey, my child support. And they were like, no, it goes to the benefit of said it. I was like, well, how is that fair? (laughs) That's my money. (laughs) And in fairness, it sounds like neither of you knew this would happen. Like, he didn't know that either. I I don't know what he knew, to be honest. Um, Soon, when when he was paying our wins, he was consistently paying. And then when I, um, so I'd moved and by the time my son was about two and a bit, I started working um, full time with a social service agency 
Um, so then I was entitled to the child support again. And I think I got two consistent payments in a row, and then he stopped paying. He just stopped paying by uh, changing his bank account, and then that took a long time, months, before they actually actioned it at their end that they would take it automatically out. And then I think they made one payment where it was they took it straight out of his bank account or wages, one of the two. And so then he quit his job. Right. So you're going, finally, you're like, finally, yeah. I get some money Got from some you. Money. I'm yeah. off the benefit. This is all coming straight yeah. to me. And then he stopped paying. Yeah, yeah. Who was, you know, you said they, was that IRD? IRD, yeah. So they're in charge of they're, dispersing this. Yeah, so they, what they do is they um, will ask you, where does he live? What's his number? What's a contact? You know, and it's like, I have a protection order. I'm not going to go digging around in his life because that's going to put myself and my son in danger, especially if he finds out that I'm asking questions. So, you know, I don't know. And when they're like, well, you don't have to tell us, but it makes it harder for us. Well, what are they doing? Like, is that not their job? Well, wouldn't you track it through their bank account or something or their like, don't oh, you the have government, to, like, yeah. they find people. Yeah. Paint me a picture. What's, what's, <laughs> what are those dealings like? You know, is oh it? Oh my gosh. So you, <laughs> you ring IRD and after about an hour of listening to really crappy music, they get put through to someone and you have to tell your story to every time you ring, you have to retell your whole story because you never get the same person consistently and they don't tend to read the notes on your file until you've retold your story. Then they go, hold on. I'm going to put you on hold. I'm going to go read your notes. Then you wait Thank for about you. 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cheers. You yeah. could have done this first, but yeah, thanks. Um, then they come back after 20 minutes and they make a promise like, yep, we see we're going to action it. We're going to get an investigator. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And you're like, sweet. And then a month later, still nothing. And you ring back and they go, okay, I'll go talk to my boss to action it. And like, hold on. This is the conversation I had with you guys last month. Well, that's not on the file, ma'am. We asked IRD why parents like Sarah can't just have one caseworker for continuity of service. They kind of answered the question, but not really. They just said that their systems and processes do give customers continuity of service. But they didn't really say how. They said they do leave notes on the file and things like that. And but Sarah that, couldn't find any, right? Exactly. Sarah couldn't find any. And that there's like advantages to having more than one person handling an account. Um, and they just said that they are really responsive so take from that what you will I guess so I assumed an investigator would work like pretty open hours but they tend my understanding from IRD is that they work during like nine to five kind of hours because how did you find that out well my ex um he became a DJ and he was then DJing under the table at nightclubs in the city and I found out because he, the clubs were promoting him. You know, he's on posters and he's, it's talked about on social media because he's quite well known. Um, so, you know, you screenshot that and you say to them, hey, he's got a source of income. He's at this club, this club and this club, you know, like starting at midnight type of stuff. And they're like, oh, you know, investigators don't work those hours. Okay, so in my head, they are just like going down there. They're like looking at a poster. Yeah. They're going down. They're like, hey, pay your child support. Yeah. Well, ringing the club. Maybe wearing a leather jacket <laughs> in this yeah. like, scenario I'm playing out. Yeah, like maybe sitting don't. in the car with binoculars for exactly. a while. That's what I pictured. But. With a lot, with a big camera? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like in the movies. Okay, so we wanted to check this one out because this one seems like a really straightforward one. We asked IRD what their investigators do in a situation where the parent who owes child support money might be DJing. 
And they said, in a situation such as you describe, it is very unlikely that we would send one of our people out to see a DJ working in a club or a bar or another venue. But this does not hamper our ability to conduct investigations. We have a very wide range of tools and resources available to us to address matters as required. And again, no detail on the specific tools and or resources. Just because you're entitled to child support doesn't mean you get child support. And then when you've got working for families, which is also another IRD payment you're entitled to if you're a parent, um, it's based off your income and how much child support you're entitled to, not what you get. And so they do like an estimate of you're going to get this much child support. Um, And then they do like this end of year calculation. And if you've missed out on child support, it really gets messy because you know, you're entitled to it, but you didn't get it. Yeah. And I've had it where IRD have then turned around and said, oh, look, you underestimated or something, so we've got to put this payment on hold and we've got to recalculate. And then they estimate lower, and then I start getting child support, and at the end of the next year, it's, oh, no, you're overpaid. So what happens then? Then they literally um, they say, oh, you owe us money, or you're not entitled to the last three payments of working families at the end of the year. I bet when you owe their money, they are pretty quickly. Oh yeah, tricky down. Oh yeah, but so yeah, that, it's amazing how fast IRD can find you when you owe them money. <laughs> and that's pretty that that um, scenario that you just explained. So I think what it means for a lot of families is that they because their income includes their unpaid child support, they yeah. get on a week for week basis they get less working for families tax yeah. credits. So every week they're short because the state assumes they're getting their child support. When and actually they when actually they're not. they're not. And then at the end of the year, when they tally it all up, I IRD might be like, Oh wait, we see that you didn't get your child support. So like here's a lump sum. Mm. Not Maybe. always. Not always. Yeah. I've never had a lump sum. <laughs> Do you think no. IRD, you know, your situation, Sarah, was that when IRD was saying to you, you know, if you could give us any details, that would really oh. help. Did they yeah. were they aware of the the nature of your relationship, you know, that there had been protection so orders? It's on their file, whether or not they read the file. It depends on who you're talking to. But I would tell them Well, this is the problem with women having to chase up yeah. the man, uh, the person who's responsible. And who could be their abuser? Yeah. Any contact with IRD that gets back to that abusive person is like a red flag. Yeah, yeah. it's like a red rag to a bull, right? Yeah. yeah. That's what abusers want. They're yeah. like, oh, she's there. Yeah. Look, I think it just demonstrates a real lack of understanding. Leanne Inder is the CEO of Birthright, an organisation for single parents that helped Sarah when she was on the benefit. Couples break up for a reason, right? So often what you're wanting to do is minimise the amount of um, potential risk or issue or aggression or disappointment even furthermore between those parties. And what we commonly see is child support becoming a significant issue for both parents, the paying parent and the receiving parent. And the ultimate... um, um, well, the children are impacted, ultimately. Um, they are the biggest, uh, they are the ones that lose out the most because not only do they not receive the financial support that they need, they become kind of a tug-of-war situation between two parents, which we know just isn't healthy and isn't great for the, either the parent-child relationship or the parent-parent, the inter-parent relationship either. So what do you think would help? What needs to change from your perspective? 
Sure, we've given a lot of thought to this actually. Um, Leanne, you've put all your time into thinking about this, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I have. Like underselling it. Is. I read Leanne's submission to the last amendment bill and it was thorough. Yeah, well, do you know, the really um, the disappointing thing for me is just the value of a child in New Zealand. So when we step back and look at this from a social policy perspective, it's not just a child support system that really needs to shift. We really need to value a child and the caregiving role in New Zealand in a similar way to Scandinavia, for example. Well, and when we were thinking about what, what other models might possibly work, it's that actually the Crown can enable the legislation um, and has the resources available to pursue the paying parent. Um, the money should just get passed on to the children from the Crown and the collection process should actually be crowned to paying parent. We sh- my strong belief is that children shouldn't be being disadvantaged. Do you reckon, I can see the advantages of designating IRD as the collection sort of agency as the people to get involved with this because it's money, <laughs> you know, they deal with money. But do you think that they're sort of, you know, they're up to the play or fit for purpose in terms of understanding these complex family dynamics that you were talking about, you know, which often impact um, the ability to get the money, you know, to get the money paid yeah, we're not seeing evidence of that. Um, and of course, back in the day, the uh, child support collection process actually didn't actually sit with um, Inland Revenue. Inland Revenue is a compliance-driven uh, organisation. And so I think a lot of the ethos and culture that we see and that often frustrated receiving parents are on the receiving end of um, is just that kind of transactional um, compliance-oriented response, which is, sorry, there's no money, so therefore keep checking in. Um, it used this Child support used to actually sit with um, what were the equivalent of MSD nowadays. Um, but I think that, that sitting with a social sector agency would probably fit better because there's quite a lot of dynamic and quite of complexity in some cases, particularly where domestic violence um, exists. And what we see is that the non-payment of child support is just another form of domestic violence in terms of the the financial domestic violence. Um, can you control, can you elaborate right? on that? Yeah. What, what's involved in that sort of violence? Domestic violence obviously takes a lot of forms. Um, what we more commonly know in societies, obviously, is a more physical c- component to that. Um, but there's often um, a combination of methods used by an abuser to uh, ensure that they are continuing to control um, their partner. And one of those mechanisms is around um, financial abuse. So the non-provision of child support means that they still have control and can still have power over their victim. We tried a um, private arrangement. And so we did this in the first month, it was great. And then the second month, it was a bit tozy. And then the third month, there were, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Demands. So if you want this, I want that. I want receipts. You know, and it just became like, like a power and control thing. So if I'm giving you child support, I'm not going to put it in your bank account. You have to come and meet me. I want receipts. How much money are we talking? Is this the sort of couple of hundred a um, month? It was about a hundred a month. So for a hundred dollars? Yes. So a hundred dollars, I have to go out of my way to meet him when he tells you the day and time. doesn't matter if you're working or not. Um, it's what's convenient to him. The hundred dollars he's giving you, you need to provide receipts for what you've spent it on. And it can't be things like food and rent and power and petrol. Don't be silly. It needs to be things like designer gears and toys. Um and and oh, and he wanted access to our social media to make sure that we weren't putting anything up. Going that, to Bali, yeah, going to Bali or putting anything up about a <laughs> hundred dollars. Yeah, on the whole yeah. hundred dollars. That's yeah. really cheap. Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and um, and at that point, I said, nah, 
And so yeah. I ended the private agreement and enforced the protection order again and said, no, back to private. So we asked IID about how they deal with situations like Sarah's where there's a protection order in place. Here's what they told us in an email. Our child support customers' lives are often very complex and their situations often difficult and highly emotionally charged. So our people are trained to handle all of the different sorts of issues and problems that they come across in dealing with customers. They didn't give us any specific details of the training or say if it was domestic violence related um, and Sarah didn't see any evidence of that. It really feels like he still has some form of power control because he can choose if he pays or not. And he knows that, well, male, you know, the paying parent, because it's not always a male, um, the, the paying parent knows that by not paying, it will have a detrimental effect on the other parent and the child. And it is a form of power and control that they have. It's the only, some for some paying parents, it's the only form of power and control that they have left. So that they, they use that because there's nothing else. Um, and it's, we somehow in New Zealand, especially for people that have been abused, there needs to be a, a better system to stop that. There just has to be because it's really re-traumatising for women that have to basically be on the phone to IRD every month and retell their story. We asked IRD what their policy is on dealing with economic harm and domestic violence. Here's what they said. The aim for all of our training and preparation is to make sure our people can work with customers to address their particular issues and get the best possible outcomes in all situations. So my interpretation of that is like, is there a policy or not? It doesn't seem like there's a policy and families are still struggling without money they're entitling to, entitled to and basically IRD just aren't answering the questions, which happens all the time in journalism and it doesn't make it any less frustrating. Can I ask you, was there anyone or any one person or one time mm. where someone really made a difference? Were there like any one moment where you felt like? I think that, that would have been birthright for me. Um, I'm going to name her, Nina. <laughs> um, she came into my life at the, the at my absolute lowest and, you know, like she treated me like a human. And I think that was what I needed and she was the most gentlest most loveliest person you'll meet but man if you were ideal wins and you crossed her <laughs> I feel for you <laughs> and and you know and she would advocate and, and, and she was never disrespectful to anybody but she would advocate strongly and it made me feel absolutely like wow I am worth something this person is telling them off for me and you know and, and getting making sure that I am able to feed my kid and she actually inspired me to do social work. So that's why I am now in this role. And I actually had the pleasure of working with her for a short period of time, um, which was absolutely amazing when you get to work with your mentor, which was, yeah, and watching her make a difference to other families, which was, yeah, really empowering. But she was absolutely the, I remember she just came into my life and I remember just being like, hope. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hope your name is Nina. Yeah. 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 Oh, Nina. Yeah. Nina. Or Sarah. Yeah. And the first thing she said to me is, you're doing a great job. And I remember I just Aww. cried because it was, you don't hear that very often. And that actually means so much yeah. as a mother, right? Eh? Yeah. Yeah. She's sitting on my broken green futon couch, you know, because I couldn't afford another one. And she never said a word about it. You know, she never, she never kind of, 
She never accepted tea or coffee because she knew that might be milk that I need for my son's formula or something, but she'd bring it. She would bring me, oh, I bought this extra pack of biscuits or I bought us some coffees or something. And when you don't get luxuries like a coffee and someone brings you like a cafe coffee, oh my God, it's like, (laughs) wow, you know, and she really, she was just, or she is, she's still an amazing, amazing person. She's still doing really great work in a different community now, but she, and I remember thinking, after my first visit, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. Um, finally, Sarah, and thank you for coming in and, and, you know, sharing your story with us. What would you say to someone, you know, in where you were? Yeah. It do- it gets better. I know I, I am still fighting IRD, like, but it, it honestly, it does get better, especially if you have to do whatever you can to keep you and your son safe. There's going to be a patchy period of time where you're trying to find your feet. But if you if you get stuck, there are so many community agencies out there that you can ring up and get some support from and that they will advocate for you and support you to be heard um, with government agencies if you feel you're not being listened to and to just bring you food parcels and to help you make goals. Um, you know, I was a single mum on the benefit that was navigating protection orders and he was he's breached 19 times. And it was I so many times I almost got to the point where I wanted to give up. But um, I had really lovely support people, Birthright, um, and some amazing case managers at WIMS that actually listened to me. I wish we could have the same ones every time. <laughs> but, you know, and then it, it does get better. Sometimes you just need someone to help you guide the system. Like they're a bit of a flashlight for you. And then eventually you can, you'll look back and you're like, well, if I can survive that I can do anything. And you'll find yourself one day providing advice to someone, whether it's a friend or a neighbor or online, you know, where you're going to be helping them. And honestly, just keep yourself and your kids safe and don't swear at IRD or they'll hang up on you. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, all wins. Um, and they put notes on your file. So we don't do that. It takes a long time to clear those notes. <laughs> they are sweary. Yeah. So you don't get jobs at IRD when you apply for them if you've sworn at them on the phone. <laughs> So don't do that. But ask to speak to their manager. Ask for them to explain it. Ask for them to clarify. Ask them to send you policies. You are entitled to that. You're entitled to know what your file says. You're entitled to know what you're entitled to. You're entitled to know. Or they, they're not allowed to tell you where he lives or what his job is, but you are entitled to know the breakdown of why that's the amount you're getting paid. And you're asked, you are allowed to be asked for a new calculation if you don't think it's fair. So ask questions. Google, like, find there's benefit rights and stuff that will help you. Just don't give up. The systems are not in place for humans. The systems are in place to make technology and computers and things, you know, do their thing. It's not, they're not here for us. Um, So it's a very hard system. But if you don't understand, reach out to community organizations and even Women's Refuge, if you're in a relationship which isn't safe, ring them. Um, You can ask them to meet you at the police station. You don't even have to leave your relationship to get supported from most of these community organizations. They can help you while you're in it. But yeah, that would be my advice is just ask. Ask for help. Ask for clarification. And just keep asking until you get results. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for being one of the lights. (laughs) 
Find a Sarah. Find a Sarah. Every founder needs a Sarah. But maybe we can put these links, some yeah. of these yeah. links in our stories. When we yeah. put our stories up. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Thank you very much for having me. No, thank you. Thank you so much to Sarah for coming in and sharing her story with us. I know that it's made an impact. I was really shocked when um, we put those questions to IRD, Michelle, and we got that response back, which didn't have any specificity or any details of any of the policies or training that they were talking about. Welcome to my world. Were you surprised? I was unsurprised. (laughs) No, I was not surprised in the least. This hints at some experience in this area. Yeah. Look, I'm just going to be very restrained and say it is beyond frustrating, but... Okay, I don't have to be restrained because it's not my story. But what I'm loving is that Noelle is like getting a taste of what it's like. It's so fun watching her in real time. Just be like, what is happening? It is actually like an out-of-body experience when you send specific questions to the government. And they just come back with a statement that's like vaguely correlated but doesn't actually answer it. And that happens daily. I guess I guess for me it was just because I hadn't heard Sarah's story before you know this was my first time hearing it and hearing what she's been through in terms of waiting for people to read her file and what she said about like how traumatizing it is that every time you pick up the phone you have to go through all of this again and and I maybe I'm an idealist but I just thought that people would care yeah what's really interesting right is if you read like um domestic abuse victims' responses to surveys about how they interact with the government, they always say, like, when they ask, what would make your experience better? They say, I don't want to have to repeat my story every single time. Like, it is traumatizing. Mm-hmm. It is re-traumatizing. I, I think the reason that stayed with me as well is because in our very first episode, that was one of the first things S said to us. You know, she said that every, and this was an episode about sexual violence, right? If you haven't heard it, you can go back and listen. But she talked about having to repeat her story and and getting called from different people all the time. And it just seems like a really simple thing that we could be doing in a systemic way, not to traumatize people more. Just have their story there on the file in a restricted manner with like a big red flag being like, Domestic violence, you know? Perhaps you don't want to ask unnecessary questions that someone else has already got an answer to. Perhaps. (laughs) All right, so next week, it's coming up to Christmas. And um, we've got a Christmas story. Well, it's not really a Christmas story. It's a birth story. I've written so many great lines for this and you've deleted (laughs) them all, Noelle. I had so many good jokes about Mary and Joseph. No room at the end. I really just kind of think I just want to break into a Christmas carol right now. So. I won't though. I can't say. (laughs) Thank God we're not. Tell Me About It is made by Bird of Paradise for Stuff. Written by me, Michelle Duff, Kirsty Johnston and Noelle McCarthy and produced by Noelle. Carol Hirschfeld is our executive producer for Stuff. And all of our engineering and audio production is thanks to Nicole, Simon and Phil from Matrix Digital in Wellington. Additional editing and soundscaping by Sam Scannell for Star. Our music is with kind permission from Tammy Nelson. Thank you, Tammy. And Tell Me About It was made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air.